Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Brenda said to me, and I'll never forget these words. She said, Jess, if ever I'm found dead and it looks like suicide, don't believe it. Dr. Brenda Page, a brilliant scientist, was brutally murdered in Aberdeen in 1978. Brenda's murder was one of Scotland's most notorious unsolved crimes. It was a huge story because it had everything, murder, mystery, sex. And I think everybody spoke about it because, you know, it was so unusual. I think they, they were very shocked that uh, there couldn't be an arrest. Uh, very shocked that there couldn't be an identification of the killer. I'm from Aberdeenshire, and although I wasn't born in 1978... I'd always been aware that Brenda's killer had never been caught because it cast such a dark shadow over the city. It's something that the people of Aberdeen have never forgotten. I've been investigating Brenda's murder since 2018, speaking to those close to her. They've given me an insight into the life of the well-respected academic. In 2020, I launched a podcast series exploring three theories I'd heard over the years surrounding the motive for her murder. Young scientist Dr. Brenda Page returns home. I was hoping the podcast would shed some new light, hopefully encourage people to come forward who could help police with their investigation. And just after the second episode dropped, they made their first arrest in 42 years. So now... I can finally reveal to you the shocking truth of what happened to Dr. Brenda Page. I'm journalist Ruth Warrender, and this is Murder in the Granite City. On Thursday, the 13th of July, 1978, Brenda left the laboratory in the University of Aberdeen, where she worked as a geneticist. She returned home to her flat in the west end of the city, famous for its grey granite stone buildings, where she lived alone. That evening, she went out for dinner at a local hotel. It was late by the time she arrived home. What I do recall is when she went back in the early hours of the morning, it appeared that someone was waiting for her. Police believed... Brenda's killer was already in her flat. She was brutally beaten about the head and died. And the following day, when she didn't turn up at work, I think an elderly neighbour opened the door at the request of colleagues at work and they found her body. It was Gordon that found her. He was very shocked. I mean, it's not every day you find your boss. It was his boss. Murdered. So, where did I start my investigation? As with any other story, 
I asked myself the obvious questions. Who would want to kill Brenda? What was the motive? And how on earth had someone got away with murder? Although she had been living away from her hometown in England for many years, Brenda kept in close contact with family and friends. Her sister Rita still lives in Ipswich. She was 44 when her sister was murdered, and when we spoke four years ago, she was 84. When I called Rita initially, I sensed that, after all these years, she had perhaps given up hope of getting any sort of closure. But she did agree to speak to me, and I'm so glad. After an early morning flight from Glasgow to London Stansted, I picked up a hire car and drove up to Ipswich to see Rita. Yeah, I phoned Rita. She um, seems absolutely lovely on the phone. And, you know, she's obviously... I think she's done a few appeals via print media. She might have done some TV. Um, so, you know, I'm sure she'll be absolutely clear in the message she wants to put out there and everything that she wants people to know about her lovely sister. Hello. Hello there. Hi, Ruth. Rita, how are you? Fine, thank you. Yeah, okay. When we settled down to chat, I asked Rita how she remembers her sister. I still think of her as being young. So I often think, what would she have been like? Because there's a big difference between us, you see. I was born before the war and she was born after. So it's a 12-year gap. And so really, I was an only child for a long while and to have a baby sister to play with was wonderful. And what are your earliest memories of Brenda then? Uh, Well... We knew that she was very bright right from the beginning because by then i just started grammar school when I was 12 and, of course, you go home and you do your homework and got to sit up at the dining table and as soon as she could sit up in her high chair, she was at that table with me scribbling and messing about, doing her homework as well. And she learnt to read way before she could go to school. And when I was at college, we had to do a child assessment. And I thought, because I've got one at home, I don't have to go and find one. And we had to give them all sorts of tests and things to see what they could do at the age of six and how bright they were and whatnot. And when I took her results back, the tutor didn't believe me. So we knew she was quite bright. And not only that, hard-working. So, uh, but not only was she bright, she could, she was practical as well. She could sew and cook and paint and crochet and make things. She made all the boys their first toys. And she even made her own wedding dress. Wow. And the back had a complete back seam with little rouleau buttons, each with a little bit of rouleau to hold it in. It must have taken her hours. I've still got it in the loft. I couldn't bear to part with it. 
She was very happy then. How would you describe your sister? Well, very sociable and funny and bright and a wonderful daughter, very close to mum. Lovely girl. And she had lots of friends. Oh, yes, yes. Here, there and everywhere. Nice friends from school, boys and girls. One of them was Diane. I asked her when she first met Brenda. We met when I was at grammar school. Um, She was in the A-stream and a brilliant scholar. And then we met in the sixth form and we both did science and there wasn't very many of us that did science. And I was always amazed that Brenda was friends with me because I just plodded along and she was just a genius. Um, And uh, we stayed friends um, and she went to London University. Um, We kept in contact with sort of letters and then when she came home for the holidays, she would come and I would go and visit her and she would visit me. Uh, So that was how we kept in contact. Brenda studied for her first science degree at London University and went on to study for a PhD in genetics at the University of Glasgow. That's where she met Dr Christopher Harrison, also a scientist. She married him in 1972, the same year she graduated with a doctorate. A year later, they moved north to the affluent west end of Aberdeen, where Brenda secured a job in the genetics department at the university. Diane remembers travelling to Aberdeen to visit Brenda in the year before she was murdered. I went in 1977, and I know it was 1977 because it was the Queen's Jubilee, and um, the day of the Jubilee, Brenda said, where do you want to go? And I said, well, there's only one place to go, Balmoral. So she took time off work to take me to Balmoral. So that was really kind. Another example of her kindness was that she found four abandoned kittens and she was feeding them every four hours in the middle of the night. But that was just another example of her kindness. So the picture Rita and Diane paint of Brenda is one of a brilliant academic. A genius, Diane said, who was also practical and kind. The people who spent most time with Brenda were her work colleagues, and one in particular, Dr Jessie Watt. Jessie, also a geneticist, worked with Brenda at the University of Aberdeen. She invited me to her home. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Boom. In rural Aberdeenshire. My neck of the woods. Okay, so these are the roads that I kind of, uh, you know, I know very well because obviously I'm kind of from this area and, um, I mean, it's just beautiful. We've got a cracking day, don't we? It's gorgeous and blue skies, fields all around us. It's just beautiful. It really is. So much space. It's just a gorgeous part of the world. It's always good to come back. But, you know, unfortunately, it's just it's just bizarre that I've come, all, you know, back to my home, you know, to try and discover what's happened and why there hasn't been someone held accountable for this 32-year-old's death. I stopped in the car park in the picturesque village where Jessie lived with her husband, Alan. Just to remind you, this was recorded four years ago. Okay, so here I am. I've arrived in Aberdeenshire a bit early um, and it's just actually struck me that it's July the 15th. And so yesterday, it was 41 years to the day that she died. Well, she was brutally murdered. And it's just, you know, I can't believe that I'm going to be speaking to a former colleague and friend of Brenda. You know, the fact that she was, right up until Brenda died, she was in close contact with her every single day at work. She would have really known, hopefully, about what Brenda was going through in life. I just think she's the kind of missing piece at the moment to a lot of the kind of questions that I have surrounding her personality, her lifestyle choices, you know, just just who she was and what the life she was leading up to that horrible, horrible day on July the 14th, 1978. Anyway, here we go. Let's let's go and uh, give Jessie a knock. Jessie and her husband, Alan, were hard at work in their garden when I arrived. I am looking for Jessie. I was lucky to catch them at home. They're retired and kept themselves busy, travelling the world. I work on board the cruise ships. What do you do? Well, two things, really. We teach ballroom dancing. Wow. Or Latin or Scottish or any kind. Yeah. And also um, I lecture. Genetics. Um, we've just come back from Antigua and the Azores, and it's all very nice. Amazing! What a and life up the Amazon and all over. Jessie highlighted one of the biggest problems I'd encountered 
during the early days of my investigation into Brenda's murder. Most of the people who knew her are dead. They're all gone. I think I must be one of the very few left. Jessie was right. Many people Brenda knew had passed away. Jessie spoke to police during the initial investigation into Brenda's murder, and they'd been back to see her when the case was reopened in 2015. They were here for hours because all the original statements that had never been signed. So they had to go over every word again from 40 years ago. And you can't remember every mm. detail from 40 years ago. Yeah. So, I mean, I thought they were really on to something big. They must have found new evidence or something. But then it just all petered out again. Never had another thing. So the original statements hadn't been signed? I asked Jessie when she first met Brenda. Well, I first met Brenda when I was a student. Uh, I wanted to do a PhD. I wanted to do it in human medical genetics. And Brenda was the expert. So I went to do a PhD with Brenda. And that was at the University of Aberdeen, yeah? Yes, that was at the medical school, um, which is part of the university. She was my tutor. Professional tutor. So you knew her on that kind of professional level, but did, did you then go on and work with her, is that right? Yes. Well, when you're doing a PhD, you do an awful lot of work. You're kind of like the general dog's body. So Brenda used to give me tasks to do to help train me, and I used to do part of the laboratory work. And so this was in the genetics department? Yes, in the clinical genetics department, where we did things like uh, prenatal diagnosis on pregnant ladies in the first trimester of pregnancy. Uh, We did some cancer research, which was what my PhD was in. Can you describe to me, like, just tell me a bit about Brenda, what she was like as a person? She was quite strict as a tutor. She um, was very professional Um, had a lot of fun in her as well, though. So I quickly became a good friend of Brenda's and I did a lot of things out with the laboratory, such as look after her cats when she was away. She could have a very good conversation with anybody, from a pauper to the queen. Um, She was very professional. She, She didn't drink much. She might have had a glass of wine now and again with a meal. But I've never known Brenda to be inebriated in my life. She always appeared punctual to her work. Sometimes she was in early. Sometimes she, she kind of used work to use up time, I think. Uh, so she was quite ambitious. She wanted to do well. She wanted me to do well. She pressed me like mad for my... I wouldn't have got my PhD without her, quite honestly. I owe her a lot. So she was very uh, professional, but she had a lot of fun in her. So, so you obviously became very close. And at that time that you knew Brenda, had she already split from her husband? It was during that time. I knew them as a couple first. And they came to visit us socially as a couple in the beginning. And then they had a... Well, I think the marriage was very up and down. You know, one minute it was red hot and the next minute they were fighting like cats and dogs. But uh, Brenda eventually moved out of the family home and bought herself a small flat in Allen Street. 
and I knew her a lot better then because she needed maybe a bit more support then. She was a bit cut up with the whole thing. When was the last time you saw Brenda? Well, I saw her at work. I forget the day of the week that this happened. I saw her at work the day before. And then the following morning, we had some quite detailed work to do together and Brenda never came. She never came to work and that was very, very unusual. So we phoned her up, phoned her flat, got no answer. And by about 10 o'clock, I was really quite bothered about her. And Gordon Stephen, the chief technician, he says, Jess, I think we should go round there. So I said, OK, but let's go together. I don't know why I said let's go together, but I did. So we went round to the flat together and her little mini was sitting by the door, which again was very unusual. Jessie was surprised to see Brenda's car still there outside her flat. So we went in. It was ground floor flat in Allen Street, number 13, if I recall correctly. And we banged on the door. No answer. And then we banged so hard on the door that the lady next door popped out. And she says, oh, she says, are you looking for Brenda? And I said, yeah, she hasn't turned up to work. What time was she supposed to be in? Oh, she was in usually before 9, maybe 8.30. This was about maybe 10.30, 11, whenever we got there. Uh, Probably nearer 11, I would think, because we probably went in coffee break. And the lady next door said, well, she says, I do have a key, because she gave me a key to feed her cats if she's away. So um, Gordon said, well, okay, give me the key. But he said to me, Jess, he says, you go and sit in the car. I mean, I had a belly the size of the moon. I could hardly stand there anymore. We'd kind of stood in the corridor for quite a while banging on this door. So luckily I did. I went and sat in the car. Jessie was heavily pregnant at the time, and it was just as well that she didn't go into Brenda's flat with her colleague. It was Gordon that found her. So I'm glad I didn't see it. I didn't see it. I just heard the story when he came out completely ashen-faced and it was very, very bad. What did he say? Well, he sat and said nothing for quite a while. I knew it was something very, very drastic. But it was a while before he actually got the words out. He was very shocked. I mean, it's not every day you find your boss, it was his boss murdered it's not every day is it, it's bound to give everybody a shock Brenda's neighbour and friend, Elizabeth Gordon who opened the door said Brenda was in bed when she found her it's been reported that Mrs Gordon was so upset that she never returned to live in the flat opposite Brenda neighbours called the police and I managed to track down the officer he was first on the scene. So, if we just um, start with your name, if you don't mind. Okay, my name is Eric Grant. Uh, I was a uniformed police constable at that time. Going back to July the 14th, 1978. I was on duty. Um, having started my shift, I was with a colleague on mobile patrol in uniform and we received a, a radio message to attend at 13 Allen Street. Uh, We were met by uh, two persons, a male who identified himself as a work colleague of the occupant of the ground floor left flat, 
Um, I now know that person to be Brenda Page. And the other person was an elderly female who lived on the ground floor right. So they had already gone in, they had already seen yes. her lying on the bed. So That's right, because you, I remember you knew what the to female, expect. I think the female had a glass of whiskey in her hand and I think uh, she was spilling more than she was drinking. She'd obviously She's been quite shocked. shocked. Yes. Yes, I, I remember going through what appeared to be a, a sitting room come kitchen area, through into the bedroom, and uh, saw the body of a female lying face up on the bed uh, with severe head injuries. I do uh, recollect that in the living area there were items on the floor that looked as though they had been knocked over perhaps during a struggle. I asked Jessie if she knew if Brenda's door had been locked. Yes, the door was locked, yes. But the back window was always left open, the little one at the top, the little top bit of the window was always left open for the cats. So people could, if they knew the flat, they could easily have had some kind of access through the back window without causing much damage. So you're saying that the back window would actually be big enough for someone to go through? Well, I don't know if it would be big enough for someone to go through. I can't remember the exact size of it, but you'd certainly get your hand in through it and maybe open the bottom bit from there. But journalist Graham Smith, who covered the investigation into Brenda's murder for the local paper, The Press and Journal, told me something else. I do remember the house was... Um, the, house was above, the bedroom in which was found was a pretty um, messy scene. Uh, from, from from the description that we were given. And it did appear that somebody had gone in a, a back garden window. Did they say anything about um, what state that window was in? It appeared to have been broken into. Uh, but whether it was or not, or whether somebody had done that to give the impression it had been broken into, I don't know. So there's some confusion there. Jessie's saying that someone could have got in through the back window as Brenda always left it open for her cats. But Graham's saying that the window could have been damaged to make it look as if someone had broken in. Newspaper reports from the time say that police believed Brenda's killer was already in the flat when she arrived home. So could she have disturbed a burglar who panicked and attacked her? I asked Brenda's sister Rita if the family visited the flat after the murder. Do you have to go up to Aberdeen? Yes, we did and had to go and see if anything was missing. Was anything missing? Not as far as we could tell. Her jewellery was laying on the table. Rings and watches and things. She'd obviously taken it off when she got home. So it wasn't robbery, was it? There's conflicting information from the press at the time. One newspaper report says Brenda may have been asleep when she was attacked. Another says she may have died after a struggle which matches what the police officer told me. Audrey Swanson used to live on Allen Street, the same street as Brenda, in the west end of Aberdeen. It was a really nice, quiet area, very friendly. Uh, you would say hello to everybody on the street. You, you maybe didn't know them personally, but you saw them as you were walking up and down. In that time, there wasn't a great deal of people um, who had cars, so you walked everywhere. It was only about five minutes from uh, Allen Street to Union Street, 
to the town centre. Audrey kept in touch with her former neighbours and they told her about the police activity in the area following Brenda's murder. I had gone into the local corner shop to see the couple who ran it and show off the new baby and we were obviously talking about the murder. They said that the police had come to speak to them, um, the sort of the door-to-door um, inquiries, but it was just generally, you know, did you see anything, hear anything? It wasn't because they wouldn't have known her, you know, in that sort of personal way. It was just, did you see anything suspicious? Did you see anything that looked out of place? Did you hear anything? But because of the distance, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have probably heard anything in the building that I stayed in, unless her window had been open and the window had been open there. But so I don't think that even the neighbours in her building were aware of anything at the time. Brenda was subjected to a really violent attack. Nobody saw or heard anything? Back in 2019, I went to see where Brenda lived for myself. OK, so I'm on Allen Street... Um, it's a big, broad, cobbled street. Um, it's a it's a lovely area, uh, with you know lined with these beautiful granite flats. So it didn't look as if any of Brenda's neighbours would still be around. I spoke to Teresa in the hairdressers at the bottom of the street. I don't see any elderly people that live in the flats on Allen Street, so I wouldn't think there would be anybody there that would have been there at that time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's more students, more single young people buying a, their first-time flats. So the people that would have been living there in the street when Brenda was around, you'd think they would be long gone? Well, I think they would be oh, long gone. As I say, there's not... I don't see any elderly people living up that street. And I would see them every day walking down this way. You know, so that's near. It's not people that would have been there like the lady that lives across the road that's been here for 45 years, mm-hmm. you know. I did speak to that lady, but she told me she was on holiday when Brenda was murdered. And that was significant. Because when I checked the date, Brenda was murdered on the 14th of July. It was the Aberdeen Fair fortnight when many of the businesses closed for two weeks and their staff took their summer holidays. So perhaps many of Brenda's neighbours were away at the time. A man who was in for a haircut told me more about Allen Street. Why don't I just explain it? I stayed just across the road 50 years ago, about 50 years ago. And all the street then was still a place you, you, you got a flat to start your life off in. It was, it was a one hit and then move on. One hit and then move on. All the street has always been like that as long as I remember. Uh, yeah, no elderly people. No, it was just... Your first flat. Your yeah, first flat. Somewhere to... To start off and then just your first days and move on. Perhaps Brenda had the same idea. She had moved to Allen Street when she split up from her husband in July 1976, two years before her murder. I think the lady, if she was on her own, she would have felt very safe in Allen Street. It's not a dark street to walk up late at night, so I think it would have been a nice area for her. Unfortunately for Brenda... That wasn't the case. Aberdeen journalist Graham Smith 
was working at the Press and Journal when news of Brenda's murder broke. What I remember is that she went to the Treetops Hotel, where she had dinner with two um, men who were almost instantly ruled out of the inquiry. Uh, and she spent the evening with them, and, I th- and it was in the early hours of the morning that she perhaps got back into a car and drove home. Uh, and the hotel was the, at that time was the Treetops, which was quite a, um, a, a kind of uh, well-known hotel and, and respected hotel. And um, how do we know that Brenda got back at half past two? Like, you know, there's no CCTV, neighbours didn't hear anything at all. Is this just a take it from the hotel? I mean, did she get back in her car and just drive straight home? I mean... My recollection is that uh, she had dinner in the street of the hotel with these gentlemen and they had a, they had a, a good uh, convivial evening and they got on very well. And uh, from recollection that she sat in the car, in a car outside and spoke to them for some time before she eventually went home, which could perhaps explain why it was in the early hours of the morning that she arrived home in Allen Street. I'm not sure how the police came to that, that time conclusion. And do you know anything about these two men, did you ever get in touch with them? Did you ever track them down? They must have had a really strong alibi, right? I, I never got in touch with them, but I think that's because they were so categorically ruled out by the police. Um, and again, in those days, there's a, it was a much more open relationship with the police. They were much... They would speak off the record, uh, which they wouldn't do nowadays. Um, and uh, so if, if the police had indicated that these men were definitely not suspects, you'd have taken that at face value. But a piece of information given out by detectives at a press conference revealed more about Brenda's private life. What I remember very clearly about that day was that the, the, the head of the CID, and I don't know whether to this day whether it was deliberate or whether it was uh, um, a slip of the tongue, but he, he revealed that uh, Brenda Page, uh, on the night of the murder, had been out with two gentlemen, uh, been out with as an escort, uh, he, or he, he alluded to that. Um, and left us to try and find out uh, exactly what had happened. Dr Brenda Page was a brilliant academic and had a great career ahead of her. So why was she working as an escort? Find out in episode two of Murder in the Granite City. Subscribe to hear other episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder in the Granite City is presented by me, Ruth Warrender, and produced by Jill Davis. It's mixed by Sean Kerwin, and the music is composed and performed by David Hearn. It's a Wireless Studios production. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.